Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. Yeah, we'll, we'll just dive in. Uh, welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Omaha Bar Association Bar Talk Podcast. I'm Dave Summers, Executive Director of the Omaha Bar Association, and I have the distinct pleasure of sitting here today in the office of Hal Dobb, a uh, four-time congressman from District 2 and uh, two-time mayor of Omaha and city and state and, and leader of many different levels and a uh, longtime member of the Omaha Bar Association. Welcome. Well, I'm very pleased to be talking with you and I think it's a great idea and I'm pleased to participate. Well, I, when I was preparing for this conversation today, uh, I was really taken aback by how much public service you've done over your career and I know that it's maybe a, a tired trope that attorneys are public servants, but but it really is it's a, it's a true thing. It works together, doesn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think that there is a distinct obligation, if not, in fact, in some uh, way, uh, a d- description of a burden that uh, properly befalls to those who become attorneys at law, that we are especially trained for doing good things for people and organizations, therefore for our communities where we live and for our country. And so with that unique training that we have on not just contracts and how to litigate and resolve disputes, but more like if, if, if you're a, a, a lawyer that's interested at all in the place where you live, you've bound in the early days of your practice to have been asked by your neighborhood association or by somebody at your church to come to the meeting because they know you're a lawyer and they need some help with their bylaws or with a contract dispute or a purchase agreement, pro bono, if you will, because they know that you have those skill sets. And I've found that that's one of the big rewards in my life of, I guess now in the Omaha Bar Association membership and state bar and more than 55 years of practice uh, has been the most rewarding thing that people recognize not just Hal Dobb or whoever the lawyer's name might be, but the fact that they recognize a person is an attorney law, a professional, who can help them with those special kinds of organizational things that help make things better. Absolutely. Um, so rewinding the, the tape here to uh, what drew you to go to law school? Back, back to the early days of hell. Well, Maybe when the, you were the Harold story, before the, Hal, well, yeah, only, only my mother <laughs> called me Harold. Is that my dad was Harold Senior and I was Harold Junior, and so one day early on our shop on our farm on the outskirts outside the city limits of Omaha, uh, my mother would holler Harold, and we could tell by the sound of her voice that one of us was in trouble, and then <laughs> neither one of us would answer. So, uh, the days of the sixty-four thousand dollar question right. on television, when the first one of the first uh, prize shows. The moderator's name was Hal March, and so she said one day, "I'm going to call you Hal <laughs> and Junior, yeah. and uh, instead of calling Junior or Harold." So that's how that happened. Well, the my dad bought a, a used round old Zenith television set in 1954, so it was our first TV set, and one of the shows was Perry Mason, mm-hmm. 
and I loved it. I was fascinated by his thought that he communicated often to his intrepid assistant, Della Street, mm-hmm. that it wasn't so much whether our client is right or wrong when you're in front of a jury it's persuading them that you have the better case that your client has the better position and I like that colloquy that advocacy that persuasive uh, obligation he felt he had Um, and and so uh, while I wanted to be a Presbyterian minister early in my life and then wanted to because of ROTC to go to West Point by the time I got into high school I wanted to be an attorney my dad had three months of law school after World War II when they came back to Lincoln for him to finish college at the university and had a wife and two hungry kids and so he just couldn't make ends meet and so we moved to Omaha. Okay. And and uh, I think so that, that conversation was always there, something he'd always wanted to do yeah. but didn't have a chance to do it. Now both his sons are lawyers. <laughs> well, uh, that's, that's certainly... Um, from the parent to the child, that, that seems to be a, yeah. a common thing. Uh, the there's many um, second generation, third generation Omaha attorneys that, that have. And both of my girls are, do- are lawyers now. <laughs> Look at my, that. My oldest uh, daughter and my youngest uh, of a siblings, a, a, a third child, mm-hmm. um, my both went to my money and my girls went to Duke and then my oldest went to William and Mary Law School okay. and my youngest went to Washington University in St. Louis, my alma mater, yeah. law school. Both were law review, both published, and both practice law now, so they really enjoy it. That's great. I uh, never thought they'd grow up thinking, listen to me gripe around the dinner table about what happened to me in the courtroom or what didn't go right about my day and my clients, <laughs> and they turn out to be lawyers, so that's pretty good. You, know? that, that, that you sold them on it, for sure. I don't know how it happened, <laughs> but it, it's rewarding. Um, so, as I understand it, you yes, Wash U for undergrad mm-hmm. and, and Link, degree. Lincoln for law, law school, mm-hmm. um, straight through. So you you came back right away and, and went to law. Well, I actually went to Washington D.C. and worked for Senator Roman Ruska oh. on his staff of the Judiciary Committee, and then had a, a plan to go to law school in Washington. Sure. And work and get through. And one day, uh, the, Senator Ruska said to me. Why are you going to go to law school in Washington, D.C.? If you want to practice law and maybe get into politics in Nebraska, you ought to go to law school in Nebraska and go home, and you will grow up with your peers, and they will become your colleagues and friends and a network. And I thought about it for a week or so, and it made sense, so I called up then Dean David Dow at the law school. I had taken my test already and was admitted back there. And he said, yeah, come on if you want to come out. So I just resigned my staff position, got in the car, and... Go right straight to law school in Lincoln. Wow. Um, and now, when when you got done with law school... Army. Or, uh, Ar- after, yeah, you went straight into the Army yep. for, for... I had a commission Korea. from RTC yeah. and uh, headed uh, to Fort Benning, Georgia for infantry training and then to Korea for two years as a platoon leader and company commander in the 2nd Infantry. And when that gig was up, back to Omaha to practice law. Yeah. That's a, that's a different clerkship. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's very different. Yeah, very different. Than, than they do today. Um, can Can you talk a bit about your your time serving and and how well, that's I in, couldn't affected you? Contemplate anything more boring than being a lawyer in the military. <laughs> so, I my dad was in the infantry, and uh, I thought that you know keeping your feet on the ground was a pretty good idea instead of being in the unstable platforms of the air or the water sure and the military service was important it was Vietnam era at the time mm-hmm. so I enjoyed it I enjoyed being a platoon leader and company commander and uh, 
I think I learned a lot uh, about people. It's a good good learning experience having to deal with people from all walks of life. Uh, I had PhDs in my rifle company. Really? You know, that were on patrol with me at night in the DMZ. I mean, I amazing experiences. Uh, uh, I, I like organizational structures. I like people, and I like problem solving. And when you're in, in a combat environment like that, you're facing it every day and challenged every day. So I, I think it toughens you up a bit and gives you good perspective. Yeah. Uh, I, I was speaking with another uh, veteran um, last year, uh, Judge Strom, and you guys uh, were both in a different troop, Boy Scouts. Yes. Um, long history in that. Could you speak I, that? I, I uh, enjoy uh, community and civic engagement, and I uh, recommend it highly to young lawyers, particularly because I think it's a great way to learn. Mm. And um, part of being a good lawyer is being able to evaluate a case, being able to strike a pretty good view uh, of your client's credibility and veracity of, of, of the truthfulness of their, their circumstance. And the more of that kind of interaction you have early in your professional career, I think the better equipped you are to be a, a good lawyer. The scouting experience to me is important. I'm still on uh, the board of, uh, of our Mid-America Council and I'm active in a number of different specialized ways. The uh, uh, scouting experience and Eagle Scout experience are important. Uh, character building, uh, uh, foundational kinds of experiences. They're more long range. They're six, eight years for me. It's been a lifetime of being in scouting, as was Judge Strom. Very active as a scoutmaster, done all those things. Of course, uh, the first firm I joined when I got back from the military was the Fitzgerald Brown Leahy McGill and Strom law firm. Really? And so Lyle was one of my mentors. I was third on the totem pole in a three-person litigation department, Lyle Strom, Bill Brennan, and Hal Dub. <laughs> well, and and we had uh, a retirement party for Judge Strom and Judge Riley uh, last year. Yes. And and the Fitzgerald Shore firm and, and how far that has reached. That was so much fun f for my wife and I to attend that as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, I had um, uh, the great opportunity to work very hard to see to it that uh, Lyle Strom became a federal judge. It was a very big, heavy lifting project for me when I was a member of Congress. There were no Republican senators from Nebraska at that time. So the White House, the Reagan administration, deferred to the Republican House delegation for guidance in that regard and happened to know Lyle yeah. and appreciate his uh, terrific intellect and his uh, persistence of uh, process and uh, with great admiration was pleased to have a lifetime of relationships with Lyle and scouting was a big part of his life. Absolutely. A big part of his life. Absolutely. And um, and Harold Rock just passed le um, yes. the other week and he was a Fitzgerald. I mean, there are yes. so many alums. Um, I can go uh, <laughs> down the list of uh, uh, Riley and all, all everybody. I mean, there's a lot of them. Uh, that was a, a great incubator for uh, not only uh, good lawyers, uh, we had a really great uh, stable of clients, but uh, a real uh, from from uh, the maestro uh, James Fitzgerald, uh, related to then the commercial federal savings and loan families, um, uh, James W R Brown. Yes. Um, um, whose boys now have the firm here, and uh, up until recently, I think that probably James Brown had the largest single taxpayer refund from the Tax Court of Appeals <laughs> of, of record. Really? Of settlement, yeah, so millions of dollars. And a, a fine lawyer, but th they, they, their mentorship to uh, us in the firm was to be active in the community. 
it wasn't an expectation. It was a requirement. They wanted you out and about it. And, and, and so a guy named Steve McGill was in that firm. Taught me a really good lesson. Steve McGill uh, was uh, unfortunately killed uh, when a, a, a car came over the median mm. in the interstate and hit him head on and he died. He was coming back from one of the meetings and he was a lawyer wor working on uh, uh, with the Balin companies at the time. Um, and I would be in the I was the last one hired, so I was 23 on the door, I think, at that time in the old Continental Building because we were temporarily there when the Woodman was being torn down to build the new Woodman Tower mm -hmm. before we moved back. And he would walk around, and he was a big man, and he would pace with a cigar, and I'd be the last one there. I had the only office without a window, <laughs> and it was right next to the library, and we still had loose leaves. Somebody had to take all the mail from that afternoon, piles of Prentice Hall and all these tax loose leaves, and get them into the three ring binders in the library for the next morning for everybody. Sure. The youngest lawyer <laughs> in that office got all those delivered, and you had to get them done that night to get them in the binders for the next morning. So I'd be there till seven, eight, nine o'clock doing legal work on every dog case that they'd put on my desk because none of them wanted it. That's how you learn. <laughs> yeah. And and he would walk by and he'd be smoking his big cigar, and he'd stick his head in the door and he'd say, "Good work begets good work." And he'd walk on. He'd never stop. He'd never <laughs> never visit. And a few weeks later, he'd stick his head in the door late at night, and he'd say, go fishing with people who like to fish. And he'd walk on. So one day, about six months, I was at the firm. I went and said, Mr. McGill, you, would you mind, could I ask you, if you have a few minutes, could you talk to me? You've said these different little pearls of wisdom, and I'm just trying to get a handle on what you mean. And he said, it's very simple, Hal. He said, if you think at the 19th hole playing golf is where you get legal business or you fish, or whatever it is that you decided to go do because you rub shoulders with people who might bring you business, and they recognize immediately that you hate fishing, you hate hunting, they're going to see right through you. Right. You're going to be miserable, you're not going to get into legal work, and you're wasting your time. He's saying, just go do things you like to do, yeah. things that you think you would enjoy, you would grow by personally, that you would make a difference in somebody else's life. That's how you pick the network activity of socialization and, and engagement in your community. And it was such good advice, and I've followed it all my life. I hope I've imparted that to others. You're not going to go get business if you're forcing yourself to go get it and you're miserable. Absolutely. Your passion bleeds through and it inspires and is, is a connection point with other people if you're being true to yourself. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, I agree. So I had good uh, good training early on in my legal uh, uh, career with Fitzgerald Brown. Then I went of counsel in to Standard Chemical and was there 10 years. Okay. Um, and uh, the uh, president of that company came to Fitzgerald Brown one day and knocked on the door and said, uh, could I see Hal Dobb? I'm a junior associate at the firm, been there about two years. And I'm saying to myself, oh, yeah, my first big corporate client, because <laughs> he was president of what was then Standard Chemical Manufacturing Company. And he came to me and he said, uh, I'm told you're a good lawyer. I'm told that uh, uh, you're reliable and have good, good character. I'd like to hire you to come work for me in my company. And I'm just building a law practice, and I go home and tell my wife I got this job offer out of the blue yeah. to go in-house. And 
we talked it over and I called him back the next day and I told him, no, I, I, yeah. I was just building a practice and getting started and I thought I'd kind of, I, I really owed the firm and right. this. Yeah. So, so about six months later, he came back. <laughs> and he said, I want to revisit that with you. This time I want you to come out to the office and I want you to go with some of my folks over to one of my mills in, in Malvern, Iowa mm -hmm. and take a look at what we do. Mm -hmm. We made and sold cattle and hog feed for farmers and ranchers and they were three million in sales and three million into debt. So mm -hmm. when, you, when you know anything that's 50% leveraged or 100% leveraged, right. it's pretty hard to recover. Right. <laughs> and he said, uh, we're, we're a 90-year-old company. We're going to have to get this company straightened out or we're going to have to close it. And he said, I want to hire you to do that. Well, I thought, you know, I always wanted to be a salesman. I like selling. <laughs> so I talked it over again, and he sweetened the offer, stock options, the, the regular package and stuff. And so I did it. I left the firm after three years, went in-house then for 10, became vice president and general counsel for that firm, and then from that point ran for Congress with the blessing of my boss, sure. who was a good Republican and a good conservative and very civically engaged as well. Had been the city as assistant city attorney here in Omaha, uh, active in the Red Cross, uh, Chairman of the Salvation Army Board. I'm on that board now. So mm -hmm. All of that gets in your blood, you know. Yeah. yeah. And how was that in-house um, counsel experience? I enjoyed it, but I'll tell you, it's a lot tougher to come out of in-house back to private right. practice. <laughs> wow. Is that a lesson where you come out of uh, in-house and you go back into the private practice, which I've done twice, and you just have been out of touch with the specifics of a lot of things, and so you'll work 10 hours to deliver a document that you ought to have been able to do in two, right. and can't charge but two. <laughs> you can't charge 10, because you just have to go learn again, and learn all over again, or do your homework. Yeah. But I enjoyed uh, that work, and we did. We uh, collected lots of accounts receivable, cleaned up the company. When I left to go to Congress, we were 25 million in sales, six states. We'd grown to 20 states in Canada grown from 200 employees to 600 employees. It was a, a, a very good experience for me in teaching me business yeah, and absolutely. the practical side of business law and what you need to do to make things work. Absolutely. And from that position, uh, certainly staving off litigation and, and, yeah, and things it, like it, that. You a don't lot want of the work of in-house is preventive yeah. uh, to diagnose sort of uh, being able to look around the corner and see what's coming and, and uh, help everybody now, especially with labor and employment's much different today, the workplace is much different today, in-house counsel uh, job is not an easy one these days. Right. But it's, it's uh, pretty easy to go from private practice into in-house. <laughs> it's a whole lot harder to come out of in-house and, and uh, go back into the private practice. You, you talked about your mentoring at Fitzgerald and uh, I guess I'll take it to another side. Uh, who are your role, role models or who have been your role models over the years, both in, in practice and in service? Well, I'd start off with my dad, mm -hmm. who uh, was, again, a, a real, uh, he, he was a traveling salesman. He grew up in Beatrice, Nebraska, Fairbury and Plymouth, in a blacksmith shop. His, my great-grandpa was a, a blacksmith, and my dad could fix anything and he taught his boys to fix anything. We had a shop out and back here, out, out in the city limits, in, in the country, uh, out by Mount View School. And uh, he, he was a hard man. Uh, but he was, uh, he listened to the radio all the time. Uh, to him, all politicians were no damn good. <laughs> um, but he never missed voting, very patriotic, uh, military, the, the whole thing, uh, very strict. So I, I, I learned a lot from him in a variety of ways. And then I would put role models um, in my life 
no doubt about it that Senator Roman Ruska was a role model. I met him the first time when he was County Commissioner Roman Ruska at the Omaha Home for Boys, which is just across my horseback from our farm to the 52nd and Ames. And he said, here's my card, young man. I'm going to run for Congress next year, and if you'd like to get involved, give me a call. That's his big, deep, <laughs> booming Czech voice, you know, from, from South Omaha. And I go home and tell my mom and dad, I sit next to dinner, Christmas dinner at the boys' home with this county commissioner, and I'm looking up at this big man who got up and made a speech. <laughs> and I was just in, in middle school, and it was really pretty cool. And I went to, to work for him when he ran for the house. I'd come home from uh, uh, Monroe, because we'd been annexed into the city by that time, and I'd beat a path on my bike to the fire barn, which is now the community center at the Benson Library at the corner of 60th and Military Avenue, and hand out his card at the trolley stop with all the people coming back home uh, in the Benson area from downtown Omaha from work that day. So I got involved in politics early on. So he was a, and then I got to go to work for him after I graduated from college. Yeah. And I was a part of that whole, that's how I kind of got. Uh, uh, my my brush with uh, early with politics was through him, and, and he was a fine lawyer, an outstanding uh, 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 senator on the Judiciary Committee. I served on the Constitutional Rights Subcommittee of Judiciary. I just learned a lot about public policy yeah. and the law, and uh, he, he uh, uh, as a Republican, voted for the Equal Rights Amendment way back when, when it mm -hmm. wasn't popular to do. He was the author of the uh, Criminal Indigent Defender Public Defender Act that we now have a huge uh, national uh, public defender uh, network. It's, it was his original bill in the minority, sponsored by, by, after he wrote the bill, he got Eastland and Fulbright to sponsor that bill. So quite a historic fellow, including the famous comment that he made about mediocre Supreme Court justices, right? So, I mean, we all have those <laughs> gaffes, right, or whatever. Uh, but uh, he's one. Uh, now I'll go back in history to uh, tell you that uh, I really have, uh, Aristotle is a very important uh, um, uh, philosophical underpinning, uh, and, and uh, I quote him often in many different ways. No man, this is before it was not right to say man, sure. but no man can fully experience life till he has stood for office. Didn't say elected to public office. Right being willing to shoulder the responsibility for your fellow man, to take on obligations, whether they're family, neighbors, community. Um, um, the whole idea of citizenship, uh, if you go back and read Aristotle, is very, very interesting. And uh, then uh, Winston Churchill would be another one that I would put on my list, a person who in a great uh, imperiled and adverse uh, circumstances stood tall. Sometimes hard to figure him out, but he stood tall. Um, and he was booted out of office. But he stood his ground, and right. uh, th there's a lot about his life that I uh, admire. And um, I've had lots of people that have influenced my life along the way. But um, I'd say maybe Ronald Reagan as well in politics was a role model because he again had a set of principles, but was so amiable in his discharge of his views mm -hmm. that the joke was that when the guy came out of his office, the secretary asked, what, you got such a big grin on your face? And he said, I've never had so much fun being fired in all my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> that kind of thing. And and the um, the very famous, and, and um, I, I guess what we all sort of aspire to is the agree to disagree. You know, I, I understand that, that you have a set of principles that guides you, and we're not going to necessarily uh, be on the same page, but we can still yeah, that's always the way I felt yeah. that you succeed. Uh, America has always been at her greatest 
when she's been governed from the middle. That doesn't mean you don't have further right or further left philosophical views, but there are some fundamentals about our Constitution that are neither Republican or Democrat. They were not Republican and Democrat in the early days of the Federalist Papers. And you go look through the framework, and uh, they were Tories and Whigs and Federalists and Populists, and there were uh, all sorts of different kinds of names given to different rump groups that had different narrower philosophical views, but we melded them Mm -hmm. to the middle. Mm -hmm. And so I felt, as a member of Congress, I was a moderate. If I were more conservative, I'd have been elected to the Senate. (laughs) as a matter of view, because when you vote for the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution, which I did, when you vote for Martin Luther King's holiday with both of our Democrat Senators Zerinsky and Nixon voted against, you have uh, not quite just conservative west of Omaha, in a way, uh, or one could argue, at least I just uh, kid about that, and then uh, as mayor, it's a nonpartisan job. Right. I had 54 boards and commissions appointed more than 800 people to those boards and commissions over to elective offices. I discovered later that over half of them were Democrats. <laughs> I must have really screwed up. But the fact is, I didn't care. Right. You want good people to, to fill roles that, that, that are useful and, and, and right. So the uh, same as a member of the Board of Regents. Uh, it's nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. And you don't approach it that way. It's public policy and it's learning how to make it. Bring people together. I was chairman of the Social Security Board nominated by George Bush, mm-hmm. confirmed by the Senate. The same process for nine months I went through that judges and ambassadors go through yeah. to get a vote on the floor of the Senate to confirm me to that board that gave oversight to Social Security, Medicare, Parts A, B, C, and D, Medicaid, SSI. I mean, half the federal budget is in those five programs. And uh, then I was asked to be chairman for five years of that six-year term. Uh, it was evenly balanced, Republican and Democrat. Mm-hmm. So our work wasn't described that way. Sure. Right. Social Security isn't Republican or Democrat. It's not conservative or liberal. It's a program that has to be run fairly, mm-hmm. objectively, and without bias. And so that's my, my rule is that's how you bring people together to get things done. And uh, uh, there may be a view that I have a more conservative edge. I think I probably do. But there's a time for that, and there's not a time for that. Sure. It's a philosophical thing for me, not a partisan thing. Right. Um, public policy is about that. You don't make wise and workable public policy if you have too uh, extreme of a set of views that other people won't sit with you and listen and work with you. You 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 push them away. Sure. And I would say that part of that um, that philosophy, um, as you said, may have may have uh, worked against you in, in the it Senate, Senate yeah, campaigns and know, everything yeah, like that. Um, and I guess I've seen that you've had some wins and some losses when it comes 25 to 25 times on the ballot <laughs> and four losses. And well, that's better than Babe Ruth's average, so. Yeah, how, how, do you, how do you come back from, um, or how, how, do you, how yeah. do you bounce back from, uh, from times when, when you weren't in, in, in the winner's in, column? Uh, my my uh, elected public office uh, in Congress and mayor was full-time and salaried. So that was about eight and seven, so about 15 years. Mm-hmm. But I've been around the public uh, uh, environment for almost all my life. Uh, most of it volunteer. Being a regent is volunteer. You, you know, you, the pay is zero. Right. So um, maybe when you're a lawyer, you're better equipped to take a loss. I lost my first jury trial. 
and it was not easy to take, let me tell you. What what kind of case was that? Uh, Joe Musi taught me a big lesson. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Joe, yeah, Past absolutely. Past president. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah, he's a good guy. Uh, but uh, he taught me a lesson that always make sure you get a deposition from, from the defendant, and he decided after I put on my case in chief, he rested without putting his client on the stand, and I, oh, did I, did I learn? Um, but the jury was out for two hours, so I was, in my case, I was hoping, you know, might have had a shot. Um, anyway, uh, but uh, it's the same, pretty simple, mo most everybody knows. Um, you don't hit the ball if you don't get up to bat. You can't win a race if you don't prepare and run. No. Uh, so you have a sting of disappointment when you lose anything. Mm -hmm. I personally don't have such a disappointment for myself. I have it for my friends and supporters in the political sense that sure. may be feeling like I let them down because we didn't win. Haven't had to go through that sting but four times, but 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 still it hurts. Mm -hmm. And you remember your losses probably more than you do your first win in the political world. But then you remember that you get up the next morning, you're not dead and bleeding, the sun is shining, you've made lots of new friends, and y you had your opportunity to contribute. Now it'll be somebody else's turn, but that's the way it should work. Yeah, so absolutely. You, you pass the torch in a civil way, right. which I think I've always done, and um, I think I've always run pretty upfront, open, positive campaigns in the public sense, tried that, tried to send that signal to others that get into this business, that it's healthy, it's a positive environment, you make a lot of friends, you can do a lot of good, so it's a useful endeavor. Absolutely. Um, getting back over to, to law practice, uh, so with uh, the young lawyers coming in, you have some in the office here and, we do. and in, in the Bar Association, what, uh, what sort of uh, words of wisdom do you have? Well, for, we're the largest the law out? firm in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. We have about uh, over 700 lawyers now and in uh, and, and 18 offices. Uh, pretty Midwest-centric, so you get to Madison, Wisconsin, and Milwaukee, and come down to Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, um, and then to, uh, you get to uh, Phoenix, and then over to um, Chattanooga and, and uh, Tennessee offices in Washington, London. Uh, so so we're a, a deal corporate commercial business firm. We don't do any other kinds of law. But that still gets us into trademark, copyright, uh, patent litigation, gets us into uh, the Patriot Act and uh, money laundering and all the things that go with financial transactions that are global because we have a pretty global practice, a, a huge inbound uh, practice. And the young lawyers that come into a firm like ours uh, we're not a factory because there are law firms like Denton uh, with 6,000 lawyers or 3,000 lawyers. We have 700, but we're still in the M100. Right. So you get way down that list. <laughs> the young lawyer in a firm like ours is attracted here because we have such a diversified practice in the business, commercial, financial world. Mm -hmm. They also know that they could transfer to the Denver office, the Chicago office. They could go to right. St. Louis or Kansas City or Washington. So it's interesting to be in a larger firm so you don't, you're not stuck in one place right. and have to change law firms if you're going to not be happy or you want a, another opportunity. In our firm, I see lawyers on our list once a week that are uh, relocating within the firm to another city. Sure. Uh, yeah, or I've had a couple from here over the past couple of years that have 
have, oh, yeah. have moved somewhere else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so and they're the still in the firm. Yeah. That they've, so, so there's opportunity like that. The, the, the lawyers, the young lawyers in our firm get pretty serious work on their desk the first minute they're here mm. because of the nature of our clientele. We have really good clients and uh, there's a lot of heavy lifting with the clients we have. Um, so, so they're 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 not going to be stuck on one case for four years, buried on a labor and employment case for four years, and, and not get any other experience. So we we rotate. Uh, we have six, uh, seven specialty practice groups where every lawyer is in one practice group. Uh, when we when I first came to this firm 18 years ago, uh, I knew about seven lawyers out of 200 because I was in a public affairs, public policy group. Right now I'm in a group of, of uh, energy and. Uh, uh, natural resources and public policy, and I have about 118 of our 700 that I know. Yeah. So I know a lot more. Lawyers have a lot more friendship connectivity, yeah. uh, which is fun, and young lawyers get that experience and a, a lot broader exposure here. And um, what I do is try to teach them a different piece of the law practice, and that's how to market and 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 de develop a client list. Right. I'm 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 interested in that as a special part of my law practice. Uh, I think that my civic engagement over the years and my public involvement has given me a lot of doors uh, to be able to knock on or go through. So taking these young lawyers through the steps that help them broaden their perspective. You can be a good lawyer, but you're not going to be a high paid partner if you don't know how to develop business. Mm -hmm. And that's tougher today than it's ever been. It's much more competitive than it's ever been. Sure. So I work with our young lawyers, not just here, but uh, throughout the firm on client development. Yeah. It's a big part of our. You lose some people die and they change law firms and right. the businesses fold or merge or sell. You so you got to constantly put new business into the pipeline. And um, and so, right now, what is the the primary focus of your of your law practice? Pretty varied. Yeah. Um, I'm probably st because of my age, uh, I'm still probably pretty much a general practitioner. Uh, the special areas in which I work are um, healthcare technology. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I do a lot of, of public policy work on city-connected issues or state-connected issues. I don't lobby, mm -hmm. but I represent clients to help diagnose the difficulty and the degree of difficulty and the potential set of solutions to winning a contract, changing a zoning uh, circumstance, uh, solving an argument in the sense that I don't know as many people in Washington anymore as I used to, but I know a lot of people in City Hall. Sure. So I have a, a good public policy and regulatory practice. Um, that's all active work right there. Uh, that is uh, a lot of a lot of paper. <laughs> um, yeah. See, I told you I was an old lawyer that kind of old-fashioned habits. I've learned a lot about how to handle the, the computer <laughs> world. We're pretty paperless around here, but. Um, I, I have this view uh, today. Uh, we're all in too big a hurry. We're all tethered to the iPhone or the iPad or the computer. Um, so I have a lock on my door. Now I know that the uh, insurance company for our law firm says all active files will be kept in the file room. Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. Right. But if I keep it under lock and key, that complies. Because when you call me and you want an answer or check on something and I want to have an accurate uh, recollection, I have your working file right here and I don't have to call the file room, call my assistant, 
have her or my legal support person go to the file room, get the file, and then when I call you back, you're busy. I get your recording, and I play. Uh, it, it, we waste two days yeah. getting something done. So when you call me, if we're doing something now that's active, I've got the file on my desk. We don't waste time. We connected. We get the job done. So yeah. I may be old-fashioned, but I think it's more efficient. And on some level, t to me, I, I still want to write on paper and it's more creative. Absolutely. It, it yeah. just does something different than a screen. And I agree. Yeah. I like files. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, that you don't lobby, but no. I, I wanted to get your take real quick on you know, that out there lobbying gets a bad rap. It and, does. And it's a, it's a great profession, yeah. very uh, respectable, and 9.9 uh, nine out of uh, ten who technically lobby um, are providing y useful service in that they're bringing specialized information to that uh, policymaker, uh, that elected official, that, that appointed official, that they wouldn't necessarily have the benefit of reading, knowing, or learning about as they consider an issue. Right. Um, you'll read in this day and age about the bad ones that give the lobbying profession a bum rap. But Thomas Jefferson said, America would be nothing but for her quilt of special interests. <laughs> and we all have them, yeah. and they all have voices. It could be the Boy Scouts. It could be uh, my church. It, it, it could be our neighborhood association. It's not just that big bad corporation or that person that you know committed fraud or embezzlement or something. Uh, um, uh, and created those difficulties. The lobbyist provides a very useful service, brings much more information to an issue, um, and I do think they get a bum rap. I, I think it's a, a very honorable profession, a uh, very useful one, and uh, we have lobbyists here in our firm that do lobby, yeah. and uh, it's a big part of our law practice. And, you know, uh, lobbyists that can present their information in a helpful way and maybe disclose their, their position and why they take their position, but but disclose information that can be used, um, you know, to make any decision. Uh, that does help lessen the burden of how many governments, that's right. how much government money has to no, be spent to do that. No, I agree. That's thing, right. right. That's right. So I think it's a. Uh, we're a small state with limited resources. Uh, we have a whole lot of government for a small state. Right. Uh, someone said we have more elected officials and more subdivisions of government than any other state in the United States. You count all of our school districts and yeah. subdivisions of government. Uh, so uh, we got a lot of government in Nebraska for a small <laughs> state, uh, yeah. and the lobby world helps make that more efficient. And with um, with the term limits, uh, you have new yeah. elected officials uh, down in Lincoln that, that don't need have that the help. institutional knowledge yeah. uh, that you'd have if you're an old timer. There's a good and a bad side to that. So <laughs> I happen to favor term limits, so yeah. reasonable. I think we should have 12 year. I advocated in the beginning years ago for 12 years instead of eight. Mm -hmm. But the people spoke at the ballot on that, see? So that's a function of uh, what, what you do. I think we're better off. I think we have a more productive unicameral now, for example, with term limits than we did before. Mm -hmm. Now, there aren't very many people around like me that have a memory of what it was like before. Right. But uh, you could kill a bill if Terry Carpenter saw you leave for the bathroom. He'd call up the bill and kill it. <laughs> I mean, that, that was the way, you know, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. it was really not a very productive environment. Now there are some rules and some protocols and some or order there. And uh, see, I think that when you're elected to the legislature or any other office that's term limited, our, our, our constitutional offices, all but one are, are term limited, 
47 governors are term limited. Our president of the United States is term limited. Uh, we almost had term limits in our Constitution. I think missed it by three votes in the in the Continental Congress. The uh, uh, I, I I think of Sam Houston. Um, you know, you can be a senator, then you can be a governor, then you can be a president of the United States. You you don't have to serve in one office for 40 years. Right. And in fact, I think that's also the bad side of it. Why term limits makes a lot of sense. It's bring in new people have some refreshing new ideas and a new set of eyes looking at the same terrain and see it differently. So. Sure, sure. Uh, so so you, would, you would be a proponent of congressional term limits? Yes. Yeah. Um, early on, I uh, believe that 18-year term limits would be probably the number one cure that we could transact in America to sort of put our ship in a healthier position to move our country forward. That would be three Senate terms, leaving them at six years each, nine House terms, leaving them each at two years, mm -hmm. and a prohibition in that amendment to the Constitution that you can't uh, uh, serve uh, uh, 18 in both. It's a combination oh. of House and Senate, gotcha. only 18. But I think that's a career pattern, about 18 years today. Most of us have, you know, don't have have 40-year uh, careers anymore. We have four or five jobs in a, in a lifetime of, of uh, endeavor. So I think... Um, that would be healthy. You'd know on the day you get there, right. there's a, a time certain when you're going to have to leave. Campaign finance would not be such a big thing to have these huge war chests. Mm -hmm. um, I think there'd be more civility. Now there are two other things that I tongue-in-cheek would offer in this dialogue on term limits. You could also ban C-SPAN <laughs> from the floor of the House and the Senate. Now I don't propose that, but think about it for a minute. The reporters could still be in the gallery like they were in the old days before C-SPAN. They could still cover the president, still be in the White House, still have the news conferences. But you wouldn't have what I call the theatricalization of the process. Right, the speech Wear the yellow tie, the red dress, and will the gentle person from Kentucky yield? And the person from Kentucky says, I will not yield to the gentleman from Nebraska. He can get his own time because what I'm thinking is you're just going to try to make me look bad in front of my constituents back home who are watching on cable. Right, right. Sharpshooting, you know, and all that. The gotcha, yeah. Gotcha stuff, and I think that that's what it is, mm -hmm. <coughs> what it amounts to. I love C-SPAN, but I think that <coughs> would be, excuse me, a cure for a very, another serious element of the turmoil that we see in our American political process. Hmm. And uh, the third thing <coughs> that I would do if, if I were king for a day and could figure out a way to make our system work better <coughs> is I would uh, uh, ask the, uh, <coughs> that, the, uh, that we remove all financial uh, uh, federal election commission rules and regulations. It, remove them? The, mil the millionaire doesn't, isn't bound by them and yeah. can self-finance their own campaign and put their own millions in them right. and you don't hear anybody screaming about it except that the person ran spent two million or ten million of their own money. Right. But if I try to do that and raise it through ten or fifteen different other mechanisms, I'm a bad guy because okay. I take PAC money or I take right, right, you know, right, all right, this stuff. Right. See? So just get rid of all that and, and then uh, you're known by the company you keep, right? Sure, right. The answer? Full disclosure right. on a week on a weekly basis. File for public. It's easy to do now. Pub public disclosure of everything. Yeah. So I would do those three things, and those are my views. I, the first one is yeah. the one that's achievable, and I think in my lifetime, I will see federal congressional term limits. I think it's coming. I I um, 
I'm, I'm kind of, on, I guess, on the other side of the spectrum, I want fully um, federally funded uh, campaigns and take out all the money in that respect because you can you can connect with the voters, the potential voters, not using the amount of money that they're spending on these. So we're going to spend twenty million in a Senate race of federal tax dollars in New York, and spend two million on that race in Nebraska. Yeah, I guess that's the one question. Is it's it pretty un change on the You state might think about market. that and how that would be. Yeah, that would. I feel like the media would still cover it, so you just you j change it to free, kind of the Trump effect of Wouldn't be I don't need to go buy it. I can just well, that's one of the media. freedoms that Trump has. Yeah, is that he didn't wasn't beholden to special interests. Right. So right. It, it there's a way to do that. Term limit them. Yeah. They because <laughs> they they don't know that Joe's going to be there 20 years. So get this guy in your back pocket, and you he's your go-to guy. Yeah. Jamie Witten, may his soul rest in peace, was the chairman. I was in the House for eight years in the minority, all eight years. Jamie Witten was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. And I'm a brand new freshman. And Tom Harkins, the senator from Iowa, but he was a House member when I was first elected just across the river here in Council Bluffs. And the worst number one rated dangerous bridge in America was the Blair Bridge. Really? Between his district and my new district. So I went to uh, Congressman Harkin. I said, Tom, can we go to Benjamin, who's the chairman of the Appropriations Committee Transportation Subcommittee, mm -hmm. and see if we can't get an earmark in those days, an earmark, to fix that bridge? DOT agrees, the world agrees. So we get through the first appropriation, get marked up in subcommittee, gets to full committee, gets in the bill, gets to the floor, and I'm reading the bill section. I had one of my aides look and see, it's not there. The earmark's not there. So I went down to Jamie on the floor that morning and I said, Mr. Whitten, uh, my name's Hal Dobb. I'm a freshman member from, and Tom Harkin and I were working on this amendment to fix this bridge. And he takes this big long paper out. He's wearing the same suit I think he had wore 40 years ago and had, had, had the mustard and the ketchup on the big old tie. And a good old southern boy. And he takes out this big piece of paper and he said, Dob, Dob, Dob. He says, Yes, I see, uh, I see you voted against the bill last year, uh, son. Uh, see you next year. <laughs> it's like that. Oh my gosh. It's like that. That's, that's a true story. And so the point was get along, go along. You, gotta, you vote for the bill, you get your. You get your pork, yeah. you don't vote for the bill. So a lot of that goes away when you know that you're not going to be there ever. He'd been there 40 years. Right. He controlled everything. Right. So it's, I've come, uh, I wouldn't have been in favor of it probably when I first came to Congress, obviously. But I've, I've come to, uh, and I sponsored three bills while I was in the House for term limits. So uh, during that time, I got, even then, when we got things done in a very bipartisan way, right. the Reagan years, we got a lot done. Didn't have this acrimony and this, so what I call partisanship to a fault. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think you turn the clock back on this if you don't change the system. Right. So what's, what does the liberal tell me? We have term limits. We have elections. Well, you <laughs> like what you got? That's what you're getting <laughs> with this so-called so term limit that you favor, which are just elections, <laughs> which are, in large part, go to the highest bidder. Yeah. The most well-financed campaigns generally win. Mm-hmm. Regardless of qualifications, they're all. You could get rid of that again. The level the playing field with term limits. You give other people a chance to get in the fight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you could go back, or if you could have a conversation right now with your young self. Okay. What would what would you what would you tell yourself? Um, that's a good question. That's a very good question. I think I would tell myself to have spent more time working on my grades in law school. <laughs>
That, that, that affected your trajectory, huh? Yeah, because I was so active in the Student Bar Association and the Regional Student Bar Association in Young Republicans in Lancaster County and in my Kappa Sigma fraternity, even though I wasn't an undergraduate at the Lincoln. I just like people and like organizations, and so I was kind of always maybe more willing to show up at a meeting for something like that than I was spend another hour on my con law right. uh, casework for the next day, although I did get uh, an eight in constitutional law and a nine in legislation, and I did well, but I, 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 I wasn't law review, and I admire people that get really good grades in law school, and I think today in this competitive world, it's not that law review makes you or breaks you as a lawyer. Um, and I might be a little bit of living proof of that, but the fact of the matter is, uh, I think I would have had a smoother uh, entry into the law practice had I had a, a better grade point average because my employers looked at that. Mm -hmm. Right. Had I not clerked the summer before for Fitzgerald Brown, and then after looking at seven or eight offers that I had coming back from the Army, yeah. deciding to go with them, they, they normally would not have hired me if I wasn't in the top 10% of my class. But they knew that I could do good work and do the research, and they knew that I was a good lawyer. Mm -hmm. My grades just didn't show it. Right. So I would say that's the first piece of advice I'd say to young law students. Buckle down, especially that first year, and really uh, forget about your social life and your, you know. And I also have a little observation. I think the married law students do better than the unmarried law students because their life is more settled and ordered and somebody's around to do something else to help things work right. right. And uh, when you're a single guy going to law school, you got to do it all, cook, do your own cooking, your own clothes washing and all that. So that was that's just an anecdotal observation. I don't mean to offend anybody by that comment. And, and uh, then the young lawyer, I would say, um, uh, find one or two things that you really like to do and do them and, and have a good balanced uh, life to start off with. Um, just go have fun sometimes. Uh, it, it, I mean, you, you can and, and do pro bono work as a young lawyer. I'm, I'm a big believer in pro bono work. Our firm is like ranked nationally in pro bono work, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, we think it really is educational for our young lawyers and gives them challenge uh, without worrying about whether or not it's going to affect their promotability. Right. Not doing pro bono work will affect their promotability. <laughs> so right. that's, but right. those are you get a lot of great experiences. Uh, Pay the, be, be it, get in legal aid, get in legal referral as a young lawyer. Right. Take those half-hour consultations. Yeah. yeah. Those are really important building blocks for a young lawyer. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it, um, I I like to think that um, it seems like as a profession we maybe don't talk about the work we're doing as pro, you know pro bono work that we're doing. Um, you worry that it may. Uh, cheapen your hourly rate because people, you know, you say that you do pro bono work. No, it's it's. No, a, it's we should be proud of, of absolutely the work that we do. It's a, it's a again. It's like public service. Mm -hmm. I find public service compelling. I was trained as a lawyer to be contributing to that element of our societal need. Pro bono work within the profession is another one of those things. Again, uh, I had Roman Rusk as a mentor, and he was very high on criminal indigent justice. That was the name of the bill he authored, mm -hmm. and it's in the law today. Uh, I wrote, uh, when I was in Congress, 200 and some bills that were freestanding, mm -hmm. separately authored. 43 of them are in the law today, and I was in the minority. When I hear these people bleed and complain back there that they're in the minority and they can't get anything done, and I say, hey, just a minute, put your nose to the grindstone, find someone in the other party that's got the same common problem their constituents have that yours has, make a deal, 
forget whose name is on the bill. Right. Get it done. Right. Exactly. Pro bono work. I've got a pro bono case right now that I'm working on for a fellow uh, uh, who's become destitute, would should be here very shortly, Medicaid eligible. The whole life was just terrible. He had his, he still had his parents' house, both of whom had passed away, still in their names, which he had stuffed with all the the clutter that you can imagine. And the house he lived in was reverse mortgaged 20 years ago and underwater, like mm -hmm. no way it was ever going to come out. Placarded, condemned by the city, and a, a whole lot of other things. With all due respect, the organization that started working with him didn't get the job done. I heard about it through his minister, mm -hmm. said, I'll, let me see what I can do. I, and now we've got it just about all done. No wills, had title changes to get done, all sorts of stuff to get. Get the mortgage company had packaged his mortgage up and sold it to some New York outfit three times over. Right. Had to chase it down. Titles weren't recorded. Right. It's a crazy thing. But there's no way that legal aid or anybody else is going to spend time straightening out all of that. It's a lot, lot yeah. to do. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot to do and, and over a long period of time. So I think it's important. And it's got to get done. It has to get taken care of. Uh, so I, I think that uh, that's what we're all of us we're trained to do. We know how to do things like that. Absolutely. Don't have to get paid for it all the time. And and uh, it's it's just uh, it's an honor to be in the profession in some respects. Yeah, that's right. And you get you got to you, you get called upon to, to remember I said there's the burden about all this. Burdens don't have to be burdensome. Burden caring and burden sharing in the kind of organizational work we do in the Bar Association and in the profession is our obligation. Maybe that's not a burden, maybe we should just call it an obligation. But it is a way in which we market the value of our profession to society. Absolutely. And that's our imprimatur. It's not just the trivet that we see of the old Abraham Lincoln thing up on the wall in law office to say that a, a lawyer's time and advice is his stock and trade. Right. Okay, I, 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 could, I could say, what does that mean? <laughs> it means I get paid or I don't get paid right. or whatever. <laughs> but you, you, you shouldn't always wor worry about, you, you should not often worry about whether you get paid. Mm -hmm. it, it, if will you do, it will come. Good work, it will come. If you do, uh, and it's the one profession where your time's your own, your day's your own, even when you're in a big firm. I have no limitations or restrictions. I have no dress code. I I could be a solo. My brother Russ, who's a lawyer here in Omaha, a very good, well-known real estate commercial uh, uh, land lawyer, uh, has been a solo practitioner his whole career. Came back from Vietnam, knocked on some doors. They weren't going to pay him near what he was being paid as a captain in the Fifth Special Forces. <laughs> he said, "I'm not going to take that big a pay cut." And uh, <laughs> we uh, read the old uh, Supreme Court uh, journal would come out. Uh, once a week with a case case note in it. Yeah. In the back there wasn't like there is in the bar association now. There's ads for different things. Was so a library, law library, was up for sale in an estate in uh, uh, a small town down near Nebraska City. And so I called up. I said, "How much do you want?" And they told us. And I said, "Deal. We'll get a U-Haul trailer." My brother and I got in the uh, car, got the trailer, went down, picked up the law library. Yeah. Brought it back, and he rented a. a, a little office in uh, the Hayden Tile building about 
70th and Maple. Still there. Mud Bruner told bars right there on the corner. Yeah. And uh, and my mother was his secretary for three years. <laughs> and so he, but he's practiced by himself as a solo practitioner and does very well. Does, does very well. Does he still have the original Lie uh, Library book? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I think it, he's very automated and yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's uh, solo practice is fine. I mean, I I yeah. talk to a lot of young lawyers that kind of get frustrated because they can't quite find the right fit for a job coming out of law school, and I counsel them that it's okay for you to form your own LLC, and don't be unemployed for a year or two, right. hang out your own shingle and. You'll get. You can get legal aid, like referrals. You can go down and talk to some of the judges, and you get some guardianships and stuff, and start working it that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I would submit from my position, it seems like there's maybe less and less uh, solo general practitioners out there, and it, it's getting a little bit out of uh, sync with the the demand. It's or the harder need. and harder to be a solo single shingle practitioner because the liability issues mm -hmm. and the technical complications if you don't have some mentorship yeah you know just the form book off the off the computer isn't right. going to do you much good and you don't want to be a legalzoom.com right. kind of a guy so it's you know you definitely need a lot of mentors now and yeah. and you, you need to have those people that you can go to because yeah, everything my uh, brother spent a day a week in the Douglas County Law Library or at the Creighton Law School Library yeah that's where his he could get he found other lawyers. Yeah. And he could talk to him and yeah. show him his work. And yeah, yeah well, it's hard to do now. Learning how to be a lawyer after law school—that's that's a big part of it. Yeah. Well, you don't really get taught to be a lawyer in law school. You don't get taught how to practice law. Right. I don't think there's even a class on law firm or law practice economics. In, in, in there's a half a semester. Yeah. Is there now? <laughs> I mean, there wasn't in my day. Yeah. So you you have, you have a clue yeah. about how to set an hourly rate or, you know. <laughs> Um, one one last question I have. Uh, you talked about you know automating practices and your your brother's practice. Yeah, um, and, and of course you can look over my shoulder in this interview and you can see that I am fully automated. I mean I yeah you, I, you even I have a screen turned uh, uh, you know, a long ways. That's my document yeah. screen. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Um, oh no, I know how to do it all. <laughs> it's just that I'd rather, like you said, have that piece of paper that I can mar mark it up and then put underline it and then come back and look at it again without bookmarking it in the computer and then having to get it and right. find it and <laughs> um, or screw it up and hit the wrong key <laughs> and lose all my work. So so you know there's I guess there's a little bit there's the nitty-gritty of, of technology and its advancement in March mm -hmm. but but where where do you see the law practice going? The legal profession law practice Well going our in the firm future? is virtual. Yeah. We have all 18 of our offices are connected. Uh, you see on my over my shoulder uh, there's a little camera right there. Yeah. Uh, I sign on not to clock in for a timesheet purpose. I sign in because I've got 18 offices. People need to know that I'm in. And we can talk. It's like Skyping. I mean, I, I can talk to my colleague at his or her desk in Phoenix yeah. right now. Yeah. And and that's helpful because it saves all the travel time. It saves all the setting up of conference calls. So I think that automation is here to stay. I think we're going to get more and more sophisticated in terms of uh, the use of the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, I think documents, the filings are all electronic now in the courts by and large. Um, I, I think that's fine. I think that's all the way it should be. Our young lawyer today doesn't really need a legal support staff person very much. That is, Yeah, that's a big change, yeah. Yeah, they, they've learned in law school uh, enough about this electronic world of law practice that they do all their own work themselves and do their own documents and 
drafting and corrections and shipping documents around the firm and other lawyers look at what they're doing and, and, and uh, look over their shoulder to help them with edits, all electronic. Do you dictate still? I do. Yeah. You'll notice over my shoulder right there that this is my reminder to take my dick the phone <laughs> home with me for this holiday Yeah. because I've got in my briefcase a significant amount of work that I can do and uh, then it goes into my computer right. and right to secretarial pool and it's done and it's on my desk in a matter of a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it really is interesting to, to see technology as the assistant um, along with the, the lawyer now proficient in it to take out that legal assistant. Yeah, our, in our firm we have what we call uh, legal support specialists mm -hmm. and they're teams and there are usually four in each team and they will work for 12 lawyers. Wow. We don't need six or eight paralegals mm -hmm. because of that. Yeah. These are highly trained and we highly support that legal support team framework and they've got all the resources in the world uh, at their fingertips. Um, again, um, our young lawyers don't use them very much yet. I use them, um, but my secretary, my assistant also takes shorthand. Right, which is what I look for for anyone I need because sometimes I'm on the fly and I got to call and say can you get this done and they can get it done but there aren't very many left that know how to do real <laughs> quick shorthand. Yeah. Um that, that isn't a, a dying trade out there. Is, oh yeah, is it is, yeah, yeah. And and I see more and more legal assistant postings for specialty training in your yeah, respect. Yeah, yeah. Um I don't have anything else to ask, but if there's something, oh. if there's something you you want to add, I will I no, will splice in here. I think this has been a great conversation. Us. I've enjoyed it. No, yeah. no, it's fine. I can't think of anything else. It's been a free, free wheeling, wide ranging uh, conversation. And, and David, I've enjoyed it, and I'm glad to be a participant in the podcast program. I think it's a great idea. Well, thank you so much for meeting us on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I'm thankful to have the oh, time to speak you. with you. Thank, thank you. you for that, and uh, thank you for all that you've done both in the legal profession, but also in the service uh, to the city, the state, the country. Thank you. You know, I've really been pleased and fortunate uh, over my lifetime, and there's still gas in my tank. I love the law practice, I love the law, and I love our city of Omaha especially, and uh, any way I can ever respond to someone's question or need, uh, my phone numbers in the phone book and um, oh, do we have phone books anymore? <laughs> you know when I virtual when I, phone books. When I talk to young people at uh, in I do a lot of, uh, of uh, classroom work at Creighton and at uh, University of Nebraska at Omaha especially, and I say and you just check your Rolodex and then you get this couple people their eyes go up and they well, what was that word? <laughs> Rolodex. Your your contact book on your iPhone. See my Rolodex. <laughs> you you actually have a Rolodex. I do. Rolodex. How can I tell you? <laughs>